Welcome to Deutsche Bank's Market to Market podcast, where we level set with global business leaders on vital topics that we are facing today. And now over to your host, Mark Fedorsik, head of the Investment Bank, in conversation with David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-executive chairman, the Carlyle Group. I do want to turn to Carlyle. You started it in 1987 um, with two partners, which remarkably, and, I don't, and as a positive, we're still working with today, Bill Conway and Dan Danello. To what do you ascribe such a long and successful career with the same two people? And what have you learned from each other? As you think about it, uh, um, we actually, when we started the firm, we had four partners. Um, and then uh, after about four or five years, one of the partners, uh, let's say, parted ways. He left. So Bill, Dan, and I basically um, were there from the beginning, and we basically became the face of the firm. And we were able to stay together uh, for all these years for, I think, uh, two reasons, maybe three. One is we each divided up responsibilities so we weren't in each other's sandbox. Bill Conway took care of investments. Dan Daniela took care of the administration, operations. I took care of fundraising and external relations and strategy, things like that. So we weren't, you know, fooling around in each other's sandbox, you might say, each day. Secondly, and this may strike people as strange, you know, Bill, Dan, and I have been business partners for 32 or three years now, but we don't socialize. In other words, uh, we virtually never have socialized, you know, unless it's at a Carlisle event or something like that or, or some big event that's in Washington, D.C. But we basically just don't socialize. And I, I've had the view over the years that when you when you spend so much time with people in business and, and social and it's their whole, your whole life is with them, it can be combustible. So to kind of you know, give us a... Um, a, a, a kind of safety valve. We we just you know we work very hard together. We talk to each other during the day, during the peak of our years, uh, you know, ten, fifteen times a day about various problems. But you know, we just were not social friends, and we just had our own social networks. And then last point is, I, I think we didn't um, we respected each other. Uh, in each person's area of expertise, we would defer to that person, and we weren't argumentative. And so it, it worked out. Um, you know, it's it's unusual to have three people stay together that long. It's not impossible, but it's it's more more challenging. I think you have to have your egos under control a bit, and I think uh, you have to just respect your your partners. And if that works, then you can do this. Well, David, it's been remarkable to watch as an observer from the outside uh, that that 33-year partnership. So thank you for sharing those comments. You raised the word fundraising where you spent uh, a tremendous amount of the responsibility. Can you maybe just share with this group a little bit? I mean, I, I can only imagine how many millions of air miles you've, you've logged over the years. Any, any trials and tribulations of fundraising? And uh, I'm, I'm almost hesitant to ask what you've enjoyed the most and least, because I have a feeling. But Well, for those who are listening, you, you might say that you know, traditionally fundraising was probably at the bottom of the totem pole of things that one would do in the investment world or the private equity world. You know, the people wanted to do the deals or they wanted to uh, manage the companies in the portfolio. Uh, very few people wanted to go out and say, I'm, I'm going to go raise the money, I'm going to go beg for money and so forth. So it wasn't something that uh, um, I, I really aspired to do. But when we started the firm, I didn't have, I'm a lawyer by training. I didn't have business experience. And so I tried to figure out how can I make myself useful. And my other partners didn't really want to run around begging for money. They just didn't have any experience in that either. But they had other skills they could employ. So I said, I'll take on that role. And I tell people all the time, when you go in an organization, figure out what you can do to add to the organization. And 
and, and make yourself um, useful there. And eventually, more things will come to your uh, to domain if you do one thing very well. And so I decided to take on fundraising. I had always had the image of fundraisers as being back-slapping people, wearing suspenders, big drinkers, playing golf all the time, and, you know, hail fellow, well met. And none of those things are my personality. But I basically figured out how to do it, and I was willing to take the time and go on the road and do it. And, um, you know, I, I regard it as one of the best experiences of my life because I got to meet people all over the world, learn different cultures and, 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 and different uh, things about how the world operates. And I think it was very helpful to the firm to have that kind of intelligence and information. But we built a network uh, that, that worked quite well. And, and what we did is one thing that it intuitively doesn't make sense, but in, in effect it worked. In private equity, it historically was a mom-and-pop business. In the 1980s, the very few firms existed in the private equity world, very small firms. Uh, there were 10 people or 15 people. And that's because in private equity, you were either a venture firm or a buyout firm or, or maybe, a, um, maybe a distressed debt firm, if that even existed then. Um, what I decided I would do is I would try to make Carlisle uh, the first of the, the firms that were um, having multiple disciplines and be like a Fidelity or a T. Rowe Price of private equity, which is to say have many different funds and then um, then centralize administrative kind of functions and then next globalize it. And there hadn't been global firms. There hadn't been firms that did multiple things. And others have now done it maybe better than we have done it, but we were a pioneer in that area. But the point I wanted to make is that the leap of faith is this. When we had one fund, and if we did well in one fund, let's say it was a buyout, I would then go out and say, well, we did well in the buyout fund for you, Mr. or Ms. Investor. Why don't you let us give you give us a chance to do it in venture capital or growth capital? And, you know, people should logically have said, well, no, you know buyouts. You don't really know growth capital. I'll find another growth capital firm. But people were willing to give us a chance, in part because I think we had developed a good relationship with them. And if you treat people well as investors through good and bad times, you're transparent with them, you were responsive to them, they will give you a chance. And so we were able to build this network, and I was able to do the fundraising in part because we had a lot of new products, and people thought we were a good organization and so forth, mm-hmm. and give us a chance to, to sell other products to them, and ultimately they worked out. Well, the, the, your, your fundraising record speaks for itself, given the amount and the time that you did it. Just one last question, and then I want to turn to people and culture. But since you raised private equity, you've seen a tremendous amount of management teams. Can you can you spot a good management team? Well, um, Henry Kravis um, from KKR has. A, has been quoted as saying that the biggest mistake he's made over the years is staying with a team too long, a management team. And I would say we've made that mistake at Carlisle as well. As a general rule of thumb, a buyout team that you start a buyout with will not be there, 50% of them will not be there by the time the exit occurs. And that's because, you know, we all make mistakes. We think that somebody is a good buyout team or good buyout manager, and it turns out that they're not. So I wouldn't say we're perfect at spotting them. The ones that are very good, though, they're good in not just running one company in a certain way and then getting it to be a successful exit. If you find a very good buyout manager, he or she can do um, those, that, that kind of management uh, a second or third time because they just have the skills. And the skills are hard work, learning how to communicate with people, sharing the credit, having a vision, 
making everybody feel like they're part of a team. And, and those are the kind of skills that you really don't find all the time. But when you can find it, whoever has it, that you want to use that person again and again if, if they still have the energy to do it. Thank you. I want to turn a moment uh, and talk about culture. Carlisle has 1,800 people in 31 offices across six different continents. How would you describe the culture of the firm, and, and how has it evolved over the past 30 years? Um, cultures always are evolve, and I would say that culture is the key to a good business organization success. You have to have a good culture. If you have a backstabbing culture or a culture where everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else or it's unhealthy, it's not going to ultimately be a successful organization. Uh, we've made our mistakes for sure, but the culture we try to instill in everybody and to try to convey into the next generation of management is a culture where we think we're doing something useful for society. We're making companies better. That makes uh, society better because it makes uh, the economy more productive. We're, we're, we're creating profits. We're employing people. So we're telling people we're doing something useful for society. It's not big, bad business just making profits. We're doing something useful for society. Second, we want people to have an enjoyable time doing it. We, third, we want people to feel that they have time and energy and incentive to go out and do other things with their lives, to, to give back to society, and not just in the business world. And we want to allocate time to do that. And basically not a cutthroat kind of strategy. We, with the three of us who started it and really been running it for a long time, did not have an investment banking background. Now, the people who typically start these kind of firms do, and I won't say that's a good or bad thing, but we just had a different kind of mindset uh, about how to bring things together and how to treat people, and it's worked out reasonably well. We've made our mistakes for sure, but I think the culture is one where people are generally happy and people are um, satisfied to go to work every day um, and, and feel that they're doing something useful. Yeah, speaking of culture and feeling like you can be useful and, and have an impact Clearly, diversity and inclusion um, has to be part of that discussion. You know, not just what roles as business leaders do we have to play, but maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the things that Carlisle is doing to continue to address diversity and inclusion in advance. Well, for, for most of the history of the United States and probably for many other countries, certainly uh, many parts of Europe as well, um, it was basically a male-dominated uh, business culture. And I would say in the United States, largely a white male dominated business culture. As people have matured, recognized that the world is different than it once was, or, and, and the world has to improve in this direction, more and more people realize that you have to reflect society if you're going to be successful. So that's why uh, firms are now doing so much in, in, in diversity and inclusion on the theory that not just because it's a good social policy to do so, but because in the end your business will be better if you reflect society. So Carlisle, we think, has been a leader in that area. We have an enormous number of, of uh, women who are leaders in our firm and, 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 and minorities and so forth, though we could always do more. And I, I think it's something that we you have, it has to start from the top. You have to convince people at the top um, that this is important, and they have to convey it to people throughout the organization. But it's going to take a while for um, any organization as large as ours or as large as yours to be as fully um, inclusive of people 
and as fully diverse as, as maybe it should be. But the United States companies have made a lot of progress. I think many cases we're following the lead in terms of diversity in some respects, or at least certain inclusion of European companies, which have done a better job, including uh, in some cases women uh, on boards that, than American companies have done. And I think there's still a lot of progress to be made in, in Asia in that regard. But I, I do think uh, you know progress has been made. It, it's hard to believe that uh, that society went so long with just you know half of society men uh, dominating everything in the business world and in my country uh, basically white men but that the world's changed fortunately now and we try to make sure that everybody in our firm has these values as part of what they they believe in can we switch i, I do want to one of the one of the recognizable shows where folks have seen you on the call has been you're very successful it's in six sixth season, excuse me, right. the David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations. So you've had a steady group of individuals, the top in the industry, across every industry background. So as you've, as you've now done that show for six years, who are the one or two people that have surprised or impressed you the most and sort of caught you off guard in terms of their answers? Well, I did a, an interview with Jeff Bezos, and that particular one, we did it in front of 2,000 people. So whenever you have a large audience, you can be a little more festive, and it was a very um, uh, high-energy group that day. And, and Jeff has a pretty good sense of humor, and I've known him for a long, long time, uh, pretty much from he started the company. So we have a pretty good rapport. And so he said many things that surprised me. I thought I knew him pretty well. But one of the things, or two of the things that he said that surprised me is that he... he um, uh, gets eight hours of sleep every night. I said, oh, my God, if I'd only known getting eight hours of sleep every night would make me the richest man in the world, I would have slept more, but I didn't do that. Or um, he said he doesn't make any big decisions before, like, 10 a.m., doesn't make any big decisions after 5 p.m., and only makes a limited number of big decisions in a week. So I wish I had known all that. I would be uh, maybe more successful. Um, but Jeff was a very uh, a very good interview. Oprah Winfrey was was terrific as well because she obviously knows how to be interviewed because she's a very good interviewer. And then George Bush and Bill Clinton together, two former presidents talking about what it's like to be former president, and uh, they have a pretty good relationship. Question for you, though, in all these successful people that you've interviewed, there must be a common thread or two that you've sort of seen of why they're so successful. Sure. Um, success is due to many different factors, and I think it's it's the, the, the traits that I tried to outline in, in a recent book were, were these that I saw as common, uh, that they had in common. One, they had largely come from middle-class backgrounds or blue-collar backgrounds. It's not impossible to be a great leader of people if you've come from the Forbes 400 kind of family background or extreme wealth, but it's less likely. Um, generally, the people that have the drive are people that have come from modest backgrounds. Secondly, they failed in their life at some point. They had to pick themselves up and, and, and get back in the, in the arena again. Third, they had a vision of what they wanted to do, and they were determined to pursue that, and therefore they're very persistent, overcoming all kinds of obstacles. Next, they were also willing to share the credit with other people. They're willing to they know how to communicate with people, how to be an, a leader by example. They know how to uh, motivate people. They generally tend to be highly ethical. They also tended to be people who, I think, after they achieved success, recognized that a lot of it came about because of luck. There was hard work. There's no doubt you need to have hard work. But there's some luck involved. And I think, therefore, that produced a fair amount of humility in people. Now, there are always leaders that are not humble. There's a lot of arrogant leaders that have done pretty well. But as a general rule, the ones I've interviewed and the ones I put in my book are people that have a certain amount of humility about what they've accomplished. And I think when you add all those things up, um, you have a pretty good leader. And then last and maybe most importantly, 
these are people that rose in an, an occasion of, of crisis because, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln might never have been heard of if there had been no civil war, or FDR might not have been heard of if we hadn't had all of the problems that he had inherited, the Depression and so forth. You need to have a crisis to really show your mettle. And many of the people that I interviewed had crises in their careers, and they showed their mettle, and they, they, they stood the test of time when, when, uh, when there was a real crisis. David, one final final question, interest of your time. You've been in the industry for over 30 years. What advice can you give to a young professional today, someone coming out of undergrad or graduate school, entering the financial industry today? Well, one, um, experiment. Um, I didn't start Carl until I was 37. I experimented with many different things. It will take a while for you to find something you really enjoy. Um, don't do just what your parents want. And as a parent, it's hard for me to, to say that because I want my kids to do things that I want them to do, but they, they have to do what they want to do. And so experiment, find something that you really love. Nobody ever won a Nobel Prize hating what they do. You have to love what you're doing. And so find some things you know, when you're in your 20s or 30s that you really love doing. If you're in the financial service world, you should be in it not because you want to make a lot of money, but because you enjoy doing day-to-day what the financial service world entails. And obviously money is a good byproduct of it, and you should do something useful with the money, but you shouldn't get into the financial service world only because you want to make money. You should do it because you like the intellectual challenge, you like putting companies together if you're a buyout person, or you like the, the, the um, excitement of meeting with other very smart people. Doing something that you think is useful and intellectually challenging, that's what you should do about what you, why you're in the financial service industry. If you don't really enjoy it, you, you're, you're never going to really be successful in the industry, you should do something else. But if you're in the industry, and I think it's a great industry to be in, and all three of my children have MBAs and they're all in the financial service industry, and so you could say I, I was a failure as a parent because I have no poets, I have no struggling artists, I only have MBAs in the private equity world, but it's because I think they saw that it was an enjoyable way to expend one's career and also made the, the byproduct of it enables you to do a lot in the philanthropy area. So that's what I would say. Well, I can tell you one thing. I've, it's fantastic advice for myself and everyone listening and the young professionals. David, I can tell you one thing. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, I speak for all my colleagues. Your insights, your wisdom, the 30-plus years, um, we really do appreciate it. Your kind words at the beginning and the relationship, I just, again, want to say thank you very much. And all I can tell you is I look forward to, to watching you and the next individual if it's the Pope on your peer-to-peer conversations. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. And again, we've enjoyed a terrific relationship with Deutsche Bank, and I hope to look forward to working with you for many, many years in the future.